Okay, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this, uh, once again, this opportunity to come together to study your word, to worship you. Uh, God, I just pray that you would uh, be with us, that you would, by your spirit, uh, open our eyes to, to see the wonderful things in your word, that we would uh, understand them more fully. Um, and uh, God, just that we would be able to to handle uh, these topics accurately and uh, in a loving manner. And uh, Lord, just that we would honor you um, in the way that we treat your word um, and that this would uh, just flow out into our lives of, of uh, service to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, um, we're continuing our study on the Holy Spirit. Um, just in review, we've talked about uh, the Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, uh, his work in the Old Testament, uh, his work in the ministry of Jesus, uh, his work in converting sinners, his work as a teacher, as a sanctifier. Uh, we've talked about what it means to be led by the Spirit. Uh, we've talked about uh, the, the gift of the Spirit uh, to the church, and we've talked about the gifts of the Spirit. Um, this morning, I, I debated about whether or not to actually tackle this topic or not. It's definitely a controversial one. But um, this morning, we're going to talk about um, does the Holy Spirit still bestow the gift of prophecy today? And that's kind of very frequently the you know the big the big controversial uh, topic uh, when we talk about uh, the gifts of the Spirit. Um, so we do want to look at that this morning. Um, I, I definitely think it's worthwhile. Um, it's definitely, you know, very fraught with controversy. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping I don't step on anybody's toes. Uh, I have a general idea of where a lot of you are at, because just from uh, conversations, and probably if you've listened to me teach, you have some idea where I'm at as well. So um, probably won't be any surprise the side I come down on. It is important to note, though, that there is to some degree, a spectrum of views, and some views are more problematic than others. Um, and so we can we can disagree with people who come down on a different side, um, you know, and you know that that aren't really like just way out there. But there are obviously positions that are way out there that should be much more concerning to us. So um, as we approach this, um, the. One thing that's important is that we have a, a definition of what we mean by prophecy. And that's actually, we, we just kind of start off with a problem because there's debates about what the definition of prophecy is. Um, probably the, the most um, common definition you get just in the world today outside of the church um, is the idea of predicting the future. Um, you know, basically, the prophecy is well. Isn't, that's what Nostradamus does, right? You know, he tells us what's going to happen in the future. Um, the second definition is the idea of proclaiming a word from the Lord. Now, this is uh, basically the Jewish usage in the Old Testament. Um, a, a subset um, of that type of prophecy would fall under the category of being predicting the future. So it's not excluding the idea of predicting the future, but uh, the idea of prophecy that we see in the Old Testament is broader than that. It's, it's, uh, it's basically just the idea of proclaiming a word from the Lord, whether it's predicting the future 
or whether it's telling something about the past or whether it's making an exhortation or a warning or what have you. Just anything that's a word from God falls under the category of prophecy. Um, another definition that sometimes people use is the idea of powerful preaching. Um, this is a perspective that uh, some in the church apply to some New Testament uses of the word prophecy. And so they would appeal to, to some of the passages that talk about uh, exercising the gift of prophecy, and then they would say that what that's referring to is the idea of powerful preaching. And so that's, that's what that idea is. <clears throat> and then the, the final definition, um, and if anybody has any more besides these four, I'd be happy to hear them, but these are the four I've, I've uh, been able to come up with. But um, the fourth one is uh, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. And now this is a perspective um, that is championed by uh, Wayne Grudem, um, and other like-minded Christians that kind of follow in his train. If you're not familiar with Wayne Grudem, he's kind of the, the champion of a continuationist view that's uh, fairly scriptural-based, uh, scripturally-based, and, and, you know, relatively sound and doesn't, doesn't partake of the excesses of many of the, of the, uh, the people in the charismatic movement. And so, again, his idea is basically that prophecy is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Um, now, if we adopt the, uh, the Jewish definition, what we find in the Old Testament, uh, then a statement of continuation would seriously jeopardize the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we would need to shape our beliefs and our practices on both the Bible uh, and the pronouncements of the prophets of the church. So if there are people in the church today who have the gift of prophecy and they're speaking these things and they're, um, you know, they're, they're telling us things that are basically just the word of God being proclaimed to us, then you know, if, we, if we direct our lives by the word of God, then that means we need to follow what the Bible says and we need to follow what the prophets are telling us as well. Um, and that, that seriously jeopardizes the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, it raises questions about, well, is, is the Bible really able to equip us uh, for every good work, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3? Um, so that's a, that's a major objection um, to, to that type of view. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why frequently people who hold to the definition that we find in the Old Testament as applying also in the New Testament, that prophecy is God speaking, it's a word from God, they would say, well, that has ceased, um, and that we, we limit ourselves to Scripture as the authoritative word of God, and anything else is going to fall somewhere short of prophecy, because prophecy has, has ceased with the completion of the Bible. Um, now, the last two definitions I gave, um, they do avoid this problem. Um, the, uh, they, they both allow for the Holy Spirit to be working in the lives of believers in a way that leads them to say things that we should not take as infallible. Um, the, our third definition, um, the, the idea that prophecy is powerful preaching. Um, very few people would argue that the Holy, uh, would, would argue that the Holy Spirit does not empower preaching. 
Um, it's, you know, it's pretty much universal. Christians are going to agree with the idea that, yes, there's, there's Holy Spirit-empowered preaching. That's, that's something that, that happens on a regular basis when the Word of God is preached. Uh, but given that he does, uh, there, the question remains whether we should uh, properly call this gift uh, or properly call this the gift of prophecy. Is that when we talk about you know spirit-empowered preaching, is that the same thing as when the Bible talks about in the New Testament the gift of prophecy? So that that remains a question there. Um, but it's not really uh, the point of controversy, and so we're gonna we're basically just gonna leave that question aside and say, okay, you you could possibly take that interpretation. It's gonna affect the way that you you handle certain passages of scripture that talk about the gift of prophecy, and that it applies to something that all of us agree happens, that there's spirit-empowered preaching. Um, the final definition um, that, uh, you know, that is presented by Wayne Grudem, uh, as Grudem himself points out, it's virtually identical to what theologian, theologians call illumination. Um, if you've studied uh, the Bible, uh, studied theology at all, um, you're probably going to have run across the idea of illumination, of something that the Spirit does that we call illumination. Um, the only real difference is that Grudem's definition includes the act of telling. So his, to, to quote him again, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Um, and so for, for at least the way he worded his, his definition, it would it couldn't be just something that God spontaneously brought to your mind and you just thought about it. It would have to be something you would speak uh, before it would fall under his category of prophecy. Um, it's uh, Without a doubt, there's definitely the idea of illumination that we find in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 119.18, I'm sure very familiar, uh, says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. That's, that's the idea that God is opening our minds to understand the things that we're reading in Scripture. Um, definitely not uh, the same thing as what we find in the Old Testament in terms of prophecy, where God is revealing some new thing to us, you know, basically just out of the blue. Um, but that it's, it's, a, it's a coming to understand the revelation that we have in Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 2, verse 7 uh, Paul says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Um, and so, you know, Paul is, he's writing scripture to Timothy, uh, and he's encouraging Timothy to think over what he's reading and gives this promise that God is going to give him understanding of those things. Um, so, again, that's what we're talking about when we talk about um, illumination. Uh, Paul even uses uh, the... Uh, the idea of of, uh, of revelation uh, with this, he Paul uses the term revelation both to refer to illumination and to something more like prophecy. So, for something more like prophecy, uh, Ephesians chapter three, verses four through five, it says, "When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed." to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And so there he's talking about specifically a revelation in terms of prophecy. Um, so he's giving new information to his apostles by the Spirit. Uh, but in the, the same letter, uh, back in chapter 1, verses 17 through 18, 
Um, and chapter one, he's, he, he doesn't use very many periods in chapter one, so I apologize for, for starting mid-sentence, um, but I'd have to go back several verses. So starting in verse 17, uh, that, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And I'll just stop there. But um, again, you have the idea of like Paul is praying for uh, the the churches the churches in the area of Ephesus, um, specifically that God would open their minds to understand these things that they've been taught. It's the idea of, of enlightenment. Uh, but he does use the the uh, the terminology there of uh, of revelation. Give you. Uh, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So Paul isn't absolutely uh, precise in his terminology, but uh, so we don't we don't want to make we don't want to make too much of exactly the wording that's used. But we can certainly see that what we what we find in Scripture is that there is this idea of illumination that we can distinguish from the idea of prophecy. Is that is that clear? Um, any, any questions about that or objections? No? Okay. So, returning to the definition of prophecy, um, it seems evident that we should favor uh, a consistency between the Old Testament usage and the New Testament usage unless we have compelling reasons not to. Um, if the Old Testament usage of prophecy is the idea of a word spoken from God, then I think we need to have a good reason to say that, well, prophecy is being used in a different way in the New Testament. Now, Wayne Grudem, and I, I do want to interact a, a fair amount with some of Wayne Grudem's argumentation. He's kind of, again, he's kind of the point man on this. Uh, Wayne Grudem argues that we should view New Testament prophecy as less authoritative uh, he points out that the Greek use of the term had a wider range of meaning than the Jewish usage and argues that New Testament uh, writers would have adopted this broader usage. Um, he also points out that the apostles uh, are the true parallel with the Old Testament prophets and argues that the New Testament prophets were something different. And so he, he wants to make that basically that parallel it's like well okay if we look at the old testament prophets the people who are speaking for god well if we want the parallel in the new testament we need to look at the apostles and not what are referred to as the prophets in the new testament um so he wants to make that distinction and say well the prophets in the new testament are something different they don't really correspond to old testament prophets and then finally he attempts to show that the prophets in the old testament did not speak with uh, authority equal to that of the word of God and sometimes they prophesied things in error so he actually makes the claim that people in the, the prophets in the New Testament were making prophecies but these prophecies were not always a hundred percent correct that they were that they would make errors um, in these uh, in these prophecies that they made um, now it's it's certainly true that um, the the use of the word um, prophecy uh, in the Greek language had a wider usage than what we find in the Old Testament. Um, but 
it's almost exclusively having the idea of you know being spiritually enlightened by some kind of you know divine force. Um, that seems to be the the normal usage. Um, and when you consider the the audience here, uh, we have a bunch of Jewish people who would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, and even the Greek-speaking people who maybe not were not familiar with the Old Testament. They still have access to the New Testament or the, to the Old Testament in the Greek translation. And so basically all of their teaching on prophecy would be what you find in the Old Testament. Um, so it would seem very strange for, for the uh, New Testament writers to suddenly just shift to a, um, a wider definition of prophecy without saying, hey, we're not really talking about the prophecy that you've been reading about in your Old Testament studies. Um, that you know, this this is just this is something new. We're doing a broader thing. Um, so hopefully that's that's a. I mean, it's kind of a simplistic uh, answer to Wayne Grudem, but I mean, I think that's I think that that's uh, that's really the way we should assume that it would be used by the New Testament writers. Um, and certainly the apostles were uh, were speaking for God, and they're the primary people that we have that were. Uh, providing what God had said, they were they're the the people who were writing the Bible for us in the New Testament. Um, but again, the the prophets of the New Testament, they were, I, I believe, expected to be understood to be speaking the word of God. Um, and I definitely challenge uh, Wayne Grudem's idea that the prophets in the New Testament made errors uh, in their prophecies. Um, he, he actually has one primary example of a prophet that he thinks just clearly made a couple of minor errors in his prophecy. Um, and so I want to take some time to work through that. Um, but I guess before I do, I should just mention that in the Old Testament, it's very clear what the requirements for a prophet were. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22 it's commanded to the people of Israel. Uh, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord, uh, how, how may we know the word the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass, or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So I think when we consider that like that's going to be the context that Christians are functioning with, that's that's the you know that's the Old Testament background to the Christian faith of the New Testament. Um, if they have prophets in the New Testament that are making prophecies and they don't come true. I, I don't think they're going to be saying that these people were actually prophets, that they were actually um, giving prophecy. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any reason to expect them to look at that and say, oh, yes, they're giving prophecy, but it's, it's New Testament prophecy, so they, you know, they can get stuff wrong. It's okay. Um, just, there's just, again, I don't think there's any reason to, to expect that. Um, and so when we have this... One example that, that uh, Wayne Grudem gives that he believes is a problem, we should definitely like seriously examine this and say, okay, is this really a prophecy that 
that was that was erroneous, um, or is is he just misunderstanding things? So the prophecy is in Acts chapter twenty-one. Um, this is um, Agabus is the uh, the prophet. He actually makes a couple of prophecies in the in the uh, in the book of Acts. Um, and the first one, there's you know there's no question that the prophecy comes true completely as he says. But in Acts chapter twenty-one, uh, verses ten and eleven. It says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, if you're like me, I mean, before I like started looking at Wayne Grudem's uh, argumentation, I looked at that and I'm like, well, that that did happen, right? I mean, it's, it's the way I remember Acts is that that happened, like he said. Um, but Wayne Grudem will point to certain things in here and say, well, they didn't happen exactly like like Agabus said. Uh, that Agabus got it mostly right, but he got a couple details wrong. So the first thing he says is that... Um, it wasn't, in fact, the Jews who bound Paul, but that it was the Romans who bound Paul. And so, you know, New Testament prophecy, not 100% accurate. So Agabus was really close, but he got who it was that, uh, that bound Paul. Uh, he got that wrong. Um, and then, um, let's see. And then it says that uh, that they will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So the Jews are, are going to be delivering uh, Paul into the hands of the Gentiles. And he says, well, no, if you look at it, the Jews, they were just trying to, um, you know, to take care of Paul themselves. They were, you know, they were going to uh, at least beat him, probably stone him to death, what, you know, whatever they were going to do. And the Romans came in and they rescued Paul. Um, and, you know, repeatedly the Jews were trying to assassinate Paul and the it was, you know, they were never delivering them over to to the Romans. It was always just the Romans were rescuing Paul and, and pulling him away. And so, a couple minor things there that Agabus got wrong. And I've been doing a lot of talking and asking questions, so I'll just I'll just throw this out. I mean, I've I've kind of thought through this now and and have my responses. But how would you respond to that? How would you when you when you look at that? You say, well. Yeah, maybe Agabus got some things wrong. Or do you have some other thoughts? And if, and if this is the first time you've thought of it, then, you know, that's probably a hard question, but I just want to throw that out there in case somebody has any thoughts. I don't see any hands going up. I... Don't know if this is accurate at all or not. Uh Um, But first of all, it it doesn't necessarily say who. It just says the Tribune orders him to be bound with chains. It doesn't say who actually binds him with chains. Can you say that? Say that one more time. It says the Tribune orders him to be bound with chains. It doesn't say whether it's the soldiers or the Jews. Okay. Bind with chains. Throw that out there. But it also does say that the crowd were shouting accusations at him. So Mm -hmm. to a certain extent, they are delivering him over in that. 
aspect. They're making mm -hmm. accusations before the Romans, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they were the ones who had, who had grabbed him up before then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are very reasonable responses. I had never even thought of the first one that you mentioned there. Um, that's, I mean, that is a possibility, um, I, and I think to a certain degree we need to allow that Luke doesn't probably necessarily feel like he has to give us every detail of what happened because um, he's probably not going to assume we're going to think that Agabus was wrong in his prophecy um, so um, so let's let's uh, let's look at a couple things here um, I mean uh, I mean my, I, I had two questions when I looked at it. basically just like the, the first the first two things that I thought of when I looked at this was, um, well, does the text ever say that he wasn't bound by the Jews? Um, and I can't find anywhere that it that it uh, ever says that he wasn't bound by the Jews. And then secondly, um, does the prophesy specify that the Jews would deliver him over willingly? Um, if you actually read uh, Grudem's arguments, um, he that's something he very much emphasizes is the idea of the willingness of the Jews that they're that they're deliberately delivering him over but when I look at Agabus's prophecy there doesn't seem to be anything about that they're willingly delivering him over um, and you know the fact is they grabbed him and they're responsible for him being handed over to the, the Romans, even if they weren't completely willing, they were still, I mean, they still went along with it, uh, basically just because they had to. So, I mean, that's just kind of like when I looked at it, that was kind of my approach. And as I looked at the at the passages that are relevant, um, I, you know, I basically came to the conclusion that is really the way to look at it. Um, so if we look at um, just a little farther down, Acts chapter 21, uh, verses 30 to 33, it says, then all the city was stirred up and uh, the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And it, uh, at once the gates were shut. Uh, and as they were seeking to kill him, uh, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Uh, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the, tri the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired, uh, he inquired who he was and what he had done. So just beginning with the question here of, well, did the Jews, uh, did the Jews bind him or did the Jews not bind him? Um, now, it, I mean, well, the way I was looking at it, I was assuming that the Romans, in fact, had bound him with the chains. Um, but... To me, that doesn't seem to indicate that the Jews hadn't already previously bound him. That's but, what I was about to say. So was... Yeah, and, and and when you when you look at it, it's not like the the Romans showed up two minutes after the the Jews grabbed him. They had grabbed him in the temple, and they had dragged him out of the temple, and then they were they were beating him, and they were planning his execution. Um, it seems very reasonable that they would have bound him, um, you know, as soon as they got a hold of him. They may have even bound him with his own belt, um, which would make it where, I mean, I don't, Agabus didn't even specify that that's, you know, that he would be bound with his own belt, but it's possible, um, and that would have just fit even better with Agabus's prophecy. 
Um, but I mean, as Ben pointed out, that I hadn't even thought of. It's possible that the you know that the uh, the Tribune told the Jews to bind him with chains. Um, but it certainly seems reasonable that it's like you come up and you find this big uproar, and there's this guy that's being beat, and he's he's tied up with a belt or you know just a rope or whatever it is, and it's like okay, there's something big going on here. Let's get a couple chains. Let's make sure this guy doesn't get away. I mean, it is interesting that it says that he bound him with you know two chains. It doesn't it doesn't just say that you know the Romans came up and bound him. It specifies that they used two chains. So. Um, it certainly is is very plausible to say that um, he's just he's going the extra mile to make sure uh, that this guy doesn't get away. Um, so um, when we when we consider this, um, given the option between saying that the words of Agabus, uh, uh, the words that Agabus attributes to the Holy Spirit were an error, or that Luke leaves you to infer that Paul was bound by the Jews, but that the Romans wanted a more secure binding, the second option seems preferable. Um, and also, it seems that the person saying that Agabus was an error has the burden of proof. Um, and you just don't have any clear evidence that the Jews did not bind him, um, either before or, as Ben mentioned, with the chains. Um, there's just no clear, clear evidence of that. So if you're going to say that the person who says, and I'll remind you that in Agabus' prophecy, um, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Um, and if you're going to say, well, yeah, he said thus says the Holy Spirit, and then what he attributed to the Holy Spirit didn't actually happen, then I'd say you have the burden of proof to show that that didn't happen. And I think that, uh, that uh, Mr. Grudem has failed to do that. Um, so I think it's very reasonable to say, yeah, we're going to go with the idea that the Holy Spirit doesn't get prophecy wrong, and that uh, that the Jews had in fact bound him. Well, and I mean, uh -huh. going even further than that, the author here attributes Agab Agabus as mm -hmm. a prophet of God, mm -hmm. knowing the Jewish tradition mm -hmm. of prophets have, mm -hmm. cannot be mm -hmm. uh, cannot or what they say must come true, mm -hmm. he would have defined this as a false prophecy mm -hmm. if it was that. Mm -hmm. I think that's the reasonable assumption. So I, th I think really it's like that Wayne Gruden has a position he's trying to, you know, to defend, and that's the reason that he doesn't you know, approach it with that. But if you just make all the normal assumptions, then yeah. I mean, Luke's just, Luke doesn't need to tell us specifically that the Jews bound him. Uh, he's going to assume you you know that that happened uh, because that's what he said that the prophet of God attributed to the to the very words of the Holy Spirit. Now, a uh, a relevant passage when we speak specifically about the idea of being delivered over uh, by the Jews, um, Acts chapter twenty eight, uh, Paul is actually telling the Jews in Rome um, what had happened to him. Uh, how it wound, you know, how he wound up in the power of of the Romans, um, and so Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17, says, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, uh, when they had examined me. 
they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, it's really helpful that we've been going through the book of Acts, and we've just basically just read this story over the last uh, several weeks. So, um, we, you know, we, we should be relatively familiar with the context. Um, but you look at this, and it seems that Paul is indicating that he was delivered to the Romans by the Jews. Um, now, Wayne Grudem is, is aware of this passage and that people use this passage against his position. Um, and he, you know, goes into minute detail trying to figure out exactly what Paul is talking about here um, and points out he doesn't say he was delivered by the Jews, uh, but that he was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And it's more the idea that it's like, well, there's the, you know, the period of time when he was at Jerusalem um, and at that point, he was in the hands of the Romans, um, and there was this plot to, to kill him by the Jews, and the Romans, you know, basically took him out by night uh, and took him, took him off to Caesarea. And so, although Grudem isn't really explicit, it seems like he's basically saying he was delivered by the Romans to the Romans, by the Romans in Jerusalem to the Romans in Caesarea. Um, but basically wants to say that, like, Paul is in no way here saying he was delivered over by the Jews. And again, he focuses very much on the idea of the, the Jews being willing um, in their delivery. Um, and, you know, basically says, no, they, they were always opposed to this. They were, they were trying to find ways to assassinate him. They didn't want to deliver him over uh, to, the, to the Romans. Uh, but again, I don't think Agabus has that in mind when he says that he would be delivered by the Jews to the Romans. And I think, um, well, I mean, what, what I would say is that the objection to Grudem's arguments doesn't rest on this passage in Acts chapter 28 and your, your interpretation of it. Uh, but it seems to be the most natural reading is that Paul is indicating that he was delivered by the Jews to the Romans. Um, if he had intended to say that he was delivered by the Romans in Jerusalem to the Romans in Caesarea, it seems that he could have been more explicit. Um, and, as, uh, and one of the things he, he, he says is he talks about, well, he's moving from one judicial system to another. Um, but as far as that goes, uh, once the tribune arrested him, he was under Roman authority. Um, even while he remained in Jerusalem, he was not handed over to the Jews to, to try him as they saw fit. And you remember that like he, he did appear before the Jews while he was still in Jerusalem, um, you know, and the Romans had to come in and grab him out again. Uh, but uh, he was brought before the Jews so that the Romans could learn what he was accused of. That was actually what was going on. And actually look at the text in Acts chapter 22, back in verse uh, 30, Acts chapter 2, sorry, Acts chapter 22, verse 30. It says, but on the next day, desiring to know the, the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So, um, it's, it's very clear that the Romans were in charge of the whole thing. They weren't going to say, okay, yeah, you Romans, you try him. Um, it was all just like, no, this is going through the Roman judicial system. Um, whether it's in Jerusalem or whether it's in Caesarea where he's less likely to get uh, assassinated um, 
either way, it's under Roman authority from the moment the Tribune gets a hold of him. Um, and so to be delivered into the hands of the Romans, really the only way that that can, I think that the most reasonable way that that can be understood is that he's being delivered over by the Jews. So that's what Agabus says, and that's what it appears uh, Paul is indicating in Acts chapter 28. Um, again, I think uh, Wayne Grudem tries to strengthen his argument by insisting that the Jews be very willing in this delivering over, but I just don't think that that's a, a necessity. Um, it's, it's because of the actions of the Jews that he wound up in the hands of the Romans. Um, and I think that's, that's really all that's necessary for the, the accurate fulfillment of that prophecy. Any, any thoughts or, or questions about that? Well, no, I was just going to say, if, if, you, if he wants to be consistent with that same argument, then Jesus was also just killed by the Romans and the Jews had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's literally the same judicial overlap that happens is the Jews have, in order to seek the death penalty, they have to come to the Romans right. to, to follow their own law and, mm -hmm. and work within the system that they're, they're under. Right. And it obviously was the Jews that killed Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But... Yeah. No one's no one's saying, oh, the Romans—they're the ones that took Jesus. Right. Right. So it, it's a it's a stretch to uh -huh. say, well, we're going to call it this way in this instance and mm -hmm. yeah. different than the other. Yeah, because I don't think he would make that claim for Jesus. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I mean, I haven't—not that I've read Wayne Grudem extensively on this, but I mean, I've tried to in the little time I had, I tried to get a grasp on his arguments, and so yeah, I think that's a good objection. And Mark, did you have something? Exact same. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and then I was I was I was going to follow that up with something, and then I was going to let you speak, and so now it slipped from my mind what I was going to say next. Um, can, I, can I mention one? Yeah, thing? go ahead. It, it is interesting because there are times when the Bible just states something, and it doesn't say whether it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And lots of times people just assume that the Bible says it, then it's right. But mm -hmm. there are times when God does give us examples that are against His will, and He just states it, but He doesn't sure. really address it. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like whenever there is a false prophet. Mm -hmm. God is very clear mm -hmm. to point that out, yeah. that it was a deceptive spirit or mm -hmm. whatever that came to this prophet. So, that is you know, point. it seems like that if Agabus had falsely prophesied, they, mm -hmm. that God would have pointed that out. It would have been a sort of an exception to the mm -hmm. way scripture usually deals with the prophets of God. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but I mean, I think ultimately, like, um, Grudem appeals to this because he needs to defend the idea that prophecy in the New Testament uh, doesn't necessarily have to be on the same authority as is what we find in Scripture. It doesn't need to be infallible. Um, so, I mean, and that, and since that allows for modern-day people to claim that they are giving a prophecy, and um, if they're incorrect, well, it's like, well, it's okay because it's New Testament prophecy, and you know, they're getting some impression from God, but they may not get the full interpretation correct, and so they may be in error about some things. And, you know, Agabus, he, you know, he got a notion of what, you know, God was going to do, but he just got a few of the details wrong, is, is basically his perspective. But, um, but I, again, I want to point to the fact that, um, that, it, that Agabus specifically says, thus says the Holy Spirit. Um, he doesn't attribute it to, this is, this is kind of what I think is going to happen based on you know, what God's been, you know, showing me. It's, this is what God, this is what the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit has said. This is what's going to happen. So, um, 
I think I think ultimately I think that um, that uh, that Wayne Grudem's uh, attempt uh, to have a a softer view, a version of of prophecy in the New Testament uh, that it just doesn't find biblical support. Um, but and as I see the the clock running by fast. Um, what about arguments for those who are less concerned uh, to maintain scriptural sufficiency? Um, because, I mean, ultimately the reason Grudem takes this position is because he's committed to scriptural sufficiency. So he wants to say, look, this, the Bible alone is where we go to, you know, for faith and practice. That's, that's the authoritative word of God. And that these other prophecies, they don't come to that level. So the scripture is sufficient. You know, we don't, we don't need these other prophecies. They're just a helpful thing. Um, but there are certainly those who um, who would say that no, these are these are on the level of the word of God. If if I tell you, thus saith the Lord, you better believe me because God told me this directly. Um, and I'm sure that you know some of you have have heard people make those types of statements. Um, so uh, we see that there were prophets in the New Testament church, and that there were. Um, there were other miraculous works being performed, speaking in tongues, healing, etc. Um, shouldn't we expect these things to continue in the church unless the Bible tells us they will cease? I mean, that's kind of the argument that's presented there. It's like, um, we see these things happening in the New Testament church. Shouldn't we expect that they will continue? Um, now, um, sometimes, I, I do want to just throw this in, sometimes um, straw men are applied to uh, I mean, yeah, straw men go both ways, so we need to be careful not to not to uh, to beat up any straw men from the other side. Um, but just to mention some things that uh, that I've certainly heard. I mean, one of the things is like when I've discussed this with people, I've, sometimes I get the the statement, "Well, you're just afraid of supernatural, you know, phenomena appearing, uh, you know, people making prophecies or speaking in tongues and stuff like that. It's just something that frightens you." And it's like, well, that's, that's not really an argument. That's just, you know, just saying that I, I disagree with it just because I'm afraid of it. Um, that's a actually a common uh, type of, of argument that's used in the world today for all sorts of things. Um, another is the idea that, well, you limit the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is a study of the Holy Spirit, right? It's like, well, is, this, is the Holy Spirit active today? Is the Holy Spirit uh, doing things in the world today? Like, well, you know, you're, you're basically saying, no, the Holy Spirit just, like, Hands off, I'm not doing anything. Um, and that's not at all the case. Um, I mean, it's sometimes presented as if uh, cessationism, you know, and I, I consider myself a cessationist, um, that it has the idea that it's like, well, there's there's no more there's no more miracles, there's no more healing, you know, God just doesn't work that way anymore. It's um, it's almost as if, you know, the cessationist has, has just bought into a materialistic view of the universe. The supernatural can't happen. Um, you know, we just go with material causes for everything. Um, but it's very important to realize that, like, I mean, and I, I know you all agree with this, and you've you've heard me, you know, mention things about this. It's like, you know, the Holy Spirit is actively working. He's actively working in regenerating people. He's actively working in illuminating us. He's actively working in healing people. I mean, why do we pray for healing for people who are sick? Um, is it because we don't believe that God will miraculously heal people? No. I mean, we believe that that's going to happen. Um, 
do we believe necessarily that there are people who are gifted with the gift of healing and they're just going around and just healing people uh, in just like, I mean, you look at the New Testament, you look at the way that uh, the apostles healed people. And it was like, you know, people were like, okay, let's, let's get a, you know, let's get a handkerchief. Let's, let's see if his, his shadow will fall on us. You know, let's, you know, touch his robe, you know, whatever it is. It's like, there's just like tons of really big, obvious healing going on with these people. I don't think that's happening today. Um, but does God miraculously heal people in answer to our prayers? Absolutely. Um, so it's a it's a straw man to say that we just don't believe that um, that God is is uh, is working, that the Holy Spirit is working and doing miraculous things. Um, but what we do see is that uh, God used signs to authenticate his uh, messengers. And um, just as we're running out of time, I want to just kind of run through things here really quick. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So there Peter... He's appealing to the miraculous works that Jesus did as signs that attested to Jesus, that God was attesting to the authenticity of who Jesus claimed to be by the, the miraculous works that he was doing. This is, this is a theme you see in Scripture. Now, there are times that miraculous things are, are done that it doesn't specifically bring this out, but just numerous times it is mentioned that these things are specifically for the purpose of authenticating messengers of God. Acts chapter 14, verse 3. Uh, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, uh, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And so uh, I, I believe, uh, not without having the context in front of me, that that's, that's uh, Paul and, and some of the others. Um, that God is testifying to the, their speaking for God by allowing them to perform miracles. Second uh, Corinthians 12:12, 12, 12, uh, Paul uh, says, uh, "The signs of a true apostle were performed among you uh, with utmost with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works." And so, and he's, he's defending his ministry there, and he's referring to the miraculous things he was able to do as the signs of a true apostle. So that authenticated his position as an apostle. Um, let's see, Hebrews uh, chapter 1, we're going to look at something in chapter 1 and chapter 2 here. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, uh, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now there, it seems like uh, the, the, author to the, letter, uh, the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is making a distinction in time periods where um, basically God was speaking to, to his people through various ways by his prophets, through dreams and visions and you know, speaking to them directly. Um, but that there's a there's a change now, and it, at this last age, um, he's he's uh, he's spoken to us by his son, and then you go to chapter two, uh, just beginning in verse one. There it says, therefore we must 
pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, there he's speaking of the, of the Old Testament, um, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And so there we see that, um, you know, that the message comes through Jesus and his apostles and they're attested by these miraculous works to show that they have authority to speak for God. Um, and while this isn't a, you know, just a statement, you know, that that prophecies are going to cease, I think you can make a case, and again, I'm, I'm short on time, but I think you can make a case that the idea there is that this is all we need. This God has his, his final revelation to us uh, provided in the coming of Christ, and that being expounded to us by his apostles, and he confirms it by these great miraculous signs, um, and then after that, we just don't need more beyond what the apostles have given us. And if you look historically, it's very hard to make the case that the miraculous works that were going on in the first century continued, um, you know, past the either the death of the apostles or shortly thereafter. Um, you know, it, it very much seems that those things faded away uh, by the, you know the end of the first century or the early part of the second century, um, and it just I think it's. I think it makes more sense that that's what God's plan was. Not that He's put in a box. Not that He's limited. Not that He couldn't uh, come down and perform miracles and give prophecy to people. Uh, but He established what He needed. What He wanted us to have. What we needed in the Scriptures, and authenticated it by the by the miraculous works that the apostles performed. And beyond that, we just don't need more. That's sufficient for us. Um, I do, I, again, I know I'm out of time. I do want to just quickly mention uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, and I'll just say that I've never found this persuasive, but I did want to mention it uh, because, uh, let's see, just to read it quickly, verses 8 through 13. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, uh, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I, be when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I, am, uh, even as I have been fully known. So now uh, faith, hope, and love abide. Uh, these three, uh, but the greatest of these is love. Again, um, sometimes people have used this to try to defend the idea of the cessation of, of prophecy and tongues um, and things like that. Um, I don't think that's a, a great argument. I mean, maybe that's what that means, um, but I, I don't find it persuasive, and usually um, people who believe that these things continue don't find it persuasive either. Um, so, and, and I've, I've actually, you know, I've talked to people where, like, the very first thing they want to say to me is, like, well, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't teach that prophecy has ceased, therefore prophecy continues. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to argue from 1 Corinthians 13. Um, 
But I think just like the overall message of Scripture, um, just in the final revelation in Jesus Christ and the, the idea of the apostles uh, writing things and being testified by their supernatural works, um, I think is a, is a good indication that that's the way that we should understand things. Um, and by and large, when we look at people who are claiming to make prophecies today, um, they are often very unbiblical things. Um, and I think everybody should realize that it's like, well, if prophecy doesn't, you know, if it doesn't square with scripture, then, then we shouldn't be believing that. So um, hopefully that very hurried explanation at the end um, is, is sufficient. Does anybody have any, any final questions or, or comments on that? Then. Uh, I just kind of reiterate a lot of what you said, but <laughs> I said. but no, uh, with with I mean, you, you look throughout the course of scripture, right? What you're saying, like, look at Moses who performed all those signs. It really was to authenticate him against, mm-hmm. uh, authenticate him as speaking for God against mm-hmm. the gods of Egypt who were false gods. Yes. You look at Elijah. There, were, the land was had was just overrun with false prophets at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the false worship of Baal and everything, and it all kind of, a lot of it culminates with the showdown between mm-hmm. the, the, with, with the, the, uh, the yeah on Mount Carmel, Mark, Mount Carmel, yeah, uh-huh. where God displays His power exactly, and, and, and that really just seems to continue into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, I think it, I think it's in First Peter, where it says the church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. It might be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it just it seems to give a very special mm-hmm. significance to yes. the apostles as uh, establishing the church after Christ is gone. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, it just continues. Yeah, yeah. And and if if, if I'd spent less time on on refuting Wayne Grudem, then I would have been able to get into <laughs> a, a few more of those things. But but yeah, I mean, I think a good argument can be made, and like hopefully hopefully uh, at least got enough of a start on the. On the presentation there, but yeah, you do certainly see. Um, I mean, you don't see that God is uh, giving prophecy and giving people the ability to perform really spectacular miracles throughout all ages of history. It does very much seem to just be at certain times, as has been pointed out, when specifically God needs to authenticate His messengers, um, and that just seems to be the way that it functions. Rather than sometimes it's presented by. Uh, those who who want to say that these things continue, that it's like, well, this is just the normal everyday experience that Christians should have, um, and uh, you know that we should all be just expecting, you know, God to be speaking to us personally, and uh, you know to you know be performing all these uh, spectacular miracles, and you know not to limit God and say that He can't do these things and then He doesn't actively today still you know perform as I said before miracles of healing in answer to our prayer, um, we still just should not expect that this grand display of just obviously supernatural power is going to be something that we're going to be just experiencing in our day-to-day lives. So, anything else? All right, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you that you are powerful. We thank you that by your Spirit you are uh, working uh, in us and through us, and uh, God, that you answer prayer. God, you are powerful. You're able to do anything that you choose to do. Uh, but God, we know that you have set things up 
in the way that you saw fit to benefit your church. And uh, God, I just pray that we would take advantage of all the spiritual blessing that you have given us and that we would just continue to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which you have called us and that we would just seek to worship you as we ought. Uh, give you all the praise and glory. We pray in Christ's name.